Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Well, good morning, C4 Church. We're really glad that you're here, of course, on this beautiful summer day. And we want to welcome, of course, the many of you still joining us online because you're traveling or you attend another community uh, or you're cottaging. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever place you live, you're most welcome this morning. As Pastor Joe just said, we are coming near the end of summer. The X is lit up, and you can go buy, I suppose, everything you want to be fried down there to eat. Uh, Maybe you shouldn't go eat there. Anyway, but we're coming also to the end of our series out of the book of Ruth. And if if you've got your Bible this morning, electronic or physical, I would love you to turn to God's Word, to Ruth chapter 4. As Joe just said, God is about to speak to us through his word, and one of the great promises of scripture is God's word does not turn void. When he speaks, something always is about to happen if we're willing. Today is, like I said, the second last sermon in this series, and to be honest, it's been quite a profound series for many of us. Uh, By Facebook, Twitter, and email, many of you have begun to express... um, your, your love for this little uh, book that many of us have read years ago or never read before. Uh, many of us have expressed themes of deep encouragement or challenge. A lot of people have used the word clarity. This little book unexpectedly has clarified much of our faith for we who are Christians and some of us who are genuinely checking out this movement. Themes of sovereignty, providence, honesty, suffering, blessing, risk, shrewdness, hope, redemption, living beyond the moment. All of these themes have been found in this little book with only four chapters. Now, all of this, as we've discovered as a family, has been worked out through the terrible lows, the boring moments, and the unbelievable highs of a normal life. In chapter one, do you remember it? Naomi, her husband, two sons, they're forced to leave Bethlehem because there is a terrible famine, and they move to a foreign country. As they arrive there, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, suddenly, unexpectedly dies, but Naomi still has her two boys. Well, they marry two women from Moab, and they live together for 10 years, and then there are no grandchildren, and then to the devastation of the whole family, both sons, Kilion and Malion, also die. Chapter 2, they hear that there's food back in Bethlehem a decade later, and so Naomi and one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, begins the journey back, and, and they arrive, and there is suddenly food, and there is also hope physically, but also spiritually. Boaz, this man, suddenly appears on the scene as a possible husband, and he's a godly man, which brings more hope. Chapter 3, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we read through the night. They make a risky move in the middle of the evening, and Ruth basically shows up to Boaz and says, Boaz, it's time to step up and be a man. You need to marry me. You need to spread your wings over me. He said, oh, I'm so into this. Yes, I'd love to do this. But then he added that big wrinkle. Do you remember? He said, but you know, there is another guy who's in Elimelech's line who's closer than me. And since you're asking me to be a kinsman redeemer, a relative who can buy you back so you're not destitute, uh, we need to go ask him. Chapter 3 left many, many matters unresolved. Which of the two men would become Ruth's kinsman redeemer? Would any of them choose to do it? Like the stories of Joseph, Job, Esther, and here Ruth, there is never a straight line from A to B. It is frustrating, it is not clear, it is faith-stretching for sure. As we begin to read chapter 4 this morning, the scene has now moved from night to morning, from Naomi's house to the city gate. 
Do you remember what Ruth's mother-in-law's last words to her were? She said this about Boaz in Ruth 3.18. Naomi said to her, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Just as Naomi had declared, Boaz did get right to work to resolve this deep love matter, but also with legal overtones. Here's how our story begins today in Ruth 4.1. You can follow along. Meanwhile, it says in Scripture, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat down or he sat there. Now, first of all, we need to ask as people living in the modern West, just in the suburbs of Toronto, why did he go to the gate? See, in our lives, in our suburban context, this type of gate does not even exist as they knew it. But this is why and where he sat. Everyone, of course, number one, had to pass through this little gate to get to the fields. If you wanted to travel to another village or another city, if you wanted to take the five or six mile trek to Bethlehem, you had to Bethlehem to Jerusalem, you had to walk through this gate. Never forget at this time, too, that Bethlehem is probably not what you think it is. There is minimum 300 people at this time and a maximum of 1,000 people. And so basically, Bethlehem is like every rural experience across Canada today. You would know all your friends and relatives. You would never escape the people you don't like because they're there. And everyone else, if they weren't a relative or a friend, was at least a deep acquaintance. And so this is the place where people would meet. The gate was the place where people would sell food and sell home items. This is the place where people, if they had coffee at this moment, would gather to have their morning Timmy's or Starbucks. Simply put, the gate is this. It is the place where all legal transactions, communal things took place, and where people would gather. If you combine Starbucks, Tim Hortons, Loblaws, HomeSense, the municipal offices, the local court, and the food bank, that's what the local gate was back then. And so Boaz, of course, comes to this spot. Because he is needing to access all of what I've just mentioned to pull off his deep love for Ruth. Now, if this is your first time with us this morning, or if you've been journeying, but let me just remind you again of what it means to be in Boaz's position. I've already mentioned it. Boaz in this passage and in this book and in scripture is called a kinsman redeemer. Like Dave and I have both preached, the idea of a kinsman redeemer is probably the most significant thought within this book beyond providence. But also, it's one of the most important ideas found from Genesis to Revelation. Like I've shared before, some of the most vulnerable people in ancient Israel were women who'd become widows. Because women were not allowed to pass on inheritance. It was a male-dominated society. And so if your sons and your husband died, you were left destitute. And the result was you were left radically poor. You'd have to beg, maybe go to prostitution, though that was illegal, or you could die. And God, who always continually through it, Scripture says that he has a deep heart, a huge heart for the poor and the vulnerable, set up a system in Leviticus 25 called the kinsman redeemer. And this was the role. If there was an unmarried man in the line of the dead, the dead husband's line, it was their responsibility, if they were willing and able and a relative, to marry this person so they did not become destitute. Now, some of you as women going, that's not a great deal. I know. But in this culture, it was life or death. This kinsman redeemer needed to show up. And like I said, Dave preached this powerfully a few weeks ago. But the kinsman redeemer had to be, of course, a deep relative, also had to be willing and able. Now, if there was not a kinsman redeemer there, this was a game changer. The protection was over and and destitution and famine would be the existence of the person. But amazingly in this story, there isn't one kinsman redeemer 
There's two. It says in verse 1, when Boaz sat down, these words. When the other kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. The time has now come. The relative comes by as he should, and in the most family and familial and kind ways, Boaz says to the unnamed relative here, hey, it's great to see you. Why don't you come over here? We just need to talk about something. The guy comes over. I'm sure he's not expecting much more than a high or catch up on family life or gossip or business, but then what Boaz does next signals to this relative and everyone around him that this is no family chit-chat. Then it says in verse 2, Boaz then took ten of the elders of the town and said to them, sit here, and they did so. This quickly moves from a chat between relatives to a legal conversation. As he calls over this other man, he also gathers ten elders from the town. These elders, older men in the community, were the ruling body. They dealt with legal matters like myrtle trials and dispute over virginity. Yes, that used to be a conversation. Family redemption rights. This is what they gathered for. They were a mix of a a municipal bureaucrat, an older grandfather, and a local judge all put together. The scene is now set in this ancient culture. At the gate, people are moving here and there. They're selling. The people that are begging are begging. The morning conversation is going. People are walking out to the fields. And as more and more walk through the gate, they suddenly, because they walk right by this, see something is going on. Boaz, a great respected man in the community, is now seated at the gate. And so is a relative. And now the elders have sat. And so now everyone begins to watch. Just like a high school fight attracts a crowd, sort of the same here. The legal, the legal wrangling begins of the, uh, over Ruth and land. It says this in verse 3. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother, that's the broadest term brother, our relative, Elimelech. Naomi is about to sell the land that used to belong to her dead husband. Now, some of us who've been along the journey are sort of shocked. This is not what we expected him to start with. This isn't the notebook moment we were waiting for. There's no mention of marriage, no mention of Ruth. There's no mention of love. He's not fighting for his woman. He brings up land. Some of us are going, well, maybe this guy is not the, uh, you know, he's not the guy we thought he was. Where's the love? Where is he, you know, the knight in shining armor fighting for his woman? And yet to the first readers of this, this would make complete understanding See, in, the first, in this culture, land was connected to familial inheritance, and in this culture, a woman was actually part of the property. And so, this was about Ruth in the broadest sense. Many of us as modern people also miss the deep and painful connection between land and death. We live in a transient culture where land changes all the time. Many of us who have bought homes don't buy necessarily new homes. There's been four or five or ten orders. Rarely in our culture is there generational ownership of land. But in this culture, it was religious. One scholar put it this way. The loss of land and the loss of an heir amounted to personal annihilation. The greatest tragedy imaginable for a Hebrew at this time was personal annihilation through the community. An Israelite's afterlife depended on having descendants living on ancestral soil. Without them, they would cease to exist. To raise the name of the dead man here, then, is is the conversation starter because they are deeply concerned about Elimelech. 
to, to, to redeem the land here is not just to take care of Ruth or help Naomi or retain the land. This is about Elimelech living into eternity, and this is about Elimelech's line not disappearing. Let me say this again. We are radical individual Westerners, and we do not live this way. But much like in Asian cultures that exist today, honor and family was so much more important than you. And so this is what you have going on here. Now, of course, we wait and really hope to see that Ruth and love are still the center of the story, and this just doesn't become some land conversation with eternal implications. Boaz says this to the other relative, I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not, tell me, I need to know, for no one has the right to do this except you. And I'm next in line. He immediately is just honest about the situation. Now, one question I started asking this week, and I don't know if you have yet, is this. Why haven't we heard about the land so far? I mean, I thought Naomi had nothing. I thought Ruth had nothing. I mean, they came home and were destitute, and it said that Ruth had to go glean in the fields. That's where Ruth met Boaz. So, so how in the world could Naomi have land and not be using it? Well, a lot of people debate on this. Some people believe that in this culture, when a man died, the woman could become the guardian of the land but could not access it. And now, because of the extreme poverty of Naomi, she's trying to get a relative buy it back so she can be helped and Elimelech doesn't disappear. Other people believe, I tend to go this way, that they had been gone for a decade. They had left to Moab for 10 years, and their land in their absence had been either squatted on or confiscated. And so in this culture, uh, you had to go to the greatest authority in your area to redeem it back, to get it worked out. And so Naomi is choosing to do this through Boaz. Now, no matter where you come down, or it may not even matter, here's what's happening at this moment. You have 10 elders, two relatives, and the whole town listening. Boaz shows up and does not disobey, does not lie, does not cheat. He, doesn't co- he just says, look, here's what's going on. He says, the land would be yours first for sure. And of course, you know that you'd be responsible, he says, to support Naomi from the profits of that field. And of course, my relative, we do want to keep this in the family and we do want to honor Elimelech in his, in his name. Now, the other guy hearing this gets excited. He thinks to himself, man, this is an amazing deal. So for a little money, I get to carry out God's will, I get to do my family duty, I get a better reputation in the village, and I also preserve one of our relatives' name. Like this, is an un, like, this is like investment without risk. I get money and reputation, and I get to keep the land because she has no relatives anyways. He says, listen, verse 4, I will redeem it. Now we stand back as we're reading our fairy tale, and we cry out, no, you can't do that. We, we want Ruth and Boaz to be together. We think Boaz's heart must be sinking at this moment. I mean, he has no legal rights at this moment. All this is going wrong. Some of us get panicked or angry. The fairy tale is being threatened. Now, the story almost stands still at this moment. It's like at a crossroads. And we ask, can anything change this? Can anything save what already seems now to be lost? Well, the answer is yes. If we were there as part of the crowd looking around, I think, as we looked at Boaz, we would see a man who was deeply serious at the moment, but not panicked at all. Boaz suddenly does something profound. He, he does a master stroke here. He changes the whole game. He does this. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing. Don't you love that? Oh, um, I just need to share one thing. 
Verse 5. On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, oh, and I forgot to mention this, and Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Oh, I'm just saying, not only do you get the land, and not only do you get to take care of Naomi, you also, I forgot to mention, get Ruth. You know, the Moabitess, the one from our enemy country that enslaved us for 18 years. That's great, isn't it? And then you'll have the responsibility of having kids with her. How exciting and fun. So many mouths to feed, so much responsibility. It's all good, though. I mean, marriage is what we're all about, and this is called a bride purchase, so I'm so impressed with you that you're going to do this. I'm really actually excited for you. I, I really hope it works out. And not only think about it, you don't just get a new mother-in-law, you also get a wife and children, two women telling you what to do. This is just, it's phenomenal. I, I just, oh, as an older man, I'm so impressed with you. It's like a tennis match, right? The elders now look back at the younger relative. I'm sure one or two of them were smiling at this moment. This is such a good move by Boaz. He wants to scare the guy off. He uses ethnic bias. And not only that, I'm quite sure he knew where this guy stood financially. See, here's the medium to long-term implication for this guy. He would be poor for a little bit by buying the land, but he'd get it. But then if he had to marry Ruth and then give her a son, then the property would actually be the son's, not his, and so he'd lose both money and the land. Now, don't forget this, and this is key to this this morning. Boaz was second in line. He had a great life. We know this from the scriptures. He had a great life. He was really rich. He did not need the land. He had an amazing reputation already in the community. And so he didn't need any of this to help him out. He's doing this because he loved Ruth. That's the ah moment. Ah. He did. He doesn't need her stuff. He doesn't need Naomi's land. He wants her because he loves her even in this old-school culture. Now, at this moment, we pause and we ask, well, what will happen? Love, future, culture, everything hangs in the balance. Well, the other kinsman redeemer, after hearing the implications of Boaz's holy ambush, says, well, well, then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. I learned this week the power, of course, of words. The word endanger here, we read it and we get the sense, but not the deep enough sense. This word in scripture endangers the word used by the ravages of war. What you are watching right now on the BBC or CNN or CBC, the deep unfolding tragedy in Syria is the word here for endanger. It is complete chaos and destruction. It is the word used in scripture when pests would come and devour crops. It is the same word used for a husband's jealous revenge after an affair. This word is so unbelievably strong. This young kinsman redeemer basically says these words. This would destroy me if I did this. The land was great. The older woman I could help out. But then a young wife and kids and sons, I'm out. It would destroy me. Boaz would be so happy. For him, this was so much more, like I said, than duty, honor, money, purchase, or property. This was love. The author of Ruth then stops to give us insight into the culture of the time and gives us a mental moment almost to absorb fully the understanding, the power of what's taken place. See, for so many of us, we keep forgetting that this story really beyond love is about providence. This is God, sovereign activity in the world, and all the barriers we thought God could never overcome, we believe it intellectually, but not experientially, he does. 
It says, the author writes here, now in that earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party would take off their sandal and they would give it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. In other words, in my family, my children own everything that I have. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, I love this, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. This is so significant. It's not just an oral statement. A physical act is taking place. The young man says, I'm out. I'm taking off my shoe, my sandal, and I'm taking it out of the circle to prove it. Now, to every person who couldn't hear the dialogue, from everyone watching from a distance, for the elders that were close, for Boaz, this had full cultural and legal authority. The unnamed kinsman now has no rights, has no responsibility. He has no access to Naomi, no access to Ruth, no responsibility to the husband's land or his actual line, no responsibility to produce an heir with Ruth. This was now a court decision. But now we need to step back and go, but what will Boaz do? See, if we didn't have the background to the story, uh, this is the scariest moment in the story, not the famine. Because Boaz, if he decides not to do anything here, then leaves Naomi and Ruth, not only in the lurch, they could die. But of course, we know Boaz isn't about that. He does something in the most public and most precise of ways. He does it so there will be no doubt at all. With the one guy's sandal out, he now puts his sandal in. Then Boaz announced the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Melion. I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Melion's widow, as my wife, in order, notice, to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not, interesting, disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, he says, you are my witnesses. It's done, he says. It's official, and I could not be happier. Let's get the engagement party going. You, my relative, you, the elders that I respect, you onlookers and gawkers, gossipers, and listen, all of you now know at this moment, Naomi and Ruth are my responsibility in the land. It's mine. Now, at this moment, what happens next is profoundly cultural and unbelievably beautiful. The elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Bethlehem and be famous in Bethlehem. That other word there is the ancient name for Bethlehem. They pray a prayer right after the legal conversation. First, they pray that God would bless Ruth. Don't miss the power of that. The elders of the town are declaring, as Boaz has already declared, as Naomi has already declared, as Ruth has already confessed, that she no longer is a Moabitess. She no longer is a worshiper of that demon god, Kamesh. They are declaring that their god is her god, and her god is their god, and they have prayed that God, Yahweh, would bless her. It is called communal affirmation of salvation. Really, it's a foreshadow of baptism. You are part of us, and we know it, and we affirm it. Second of all, they pray over Ruth. They pray that she would become like Rachel and Leah. These women were the wives of Jacob, who later took the name Israel. 
They help birth 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they pray that Boaz and Ruth and their children would have profound influence, that they'd be used by God to further his name, that God would establish them for great things that go beyond Israel. But there's more. There's pain in this story we miss. There's pain. See, this is a small town, and everyone knows everything. And everyone knows that Ruth had been married for 10 years and couldn't have kids. And so she's been declared barren. In this culture, there is nothing for a woman more dangerous or scary other than widowhood than being barren. And amazingly, if you catch this, suddenly the elders of the town pray that she will become like Rachel and Lee. You say, well, what's the point? Here's the point. Both of them were barren too. And God shows up and opens the room. Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her room, but Rachel was barren. And Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Genesis 30, then God remembered Rachel and he listened to her and opened her womb. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. They are praying at this moment for signs and wonders. They are praying that she will be like Rachel and Leah. Not only that God would establish her, not only that her children would be in existence, but even more significant, that her child or children would be in the great move of God and the line of the Messiah. The prayer isn't done. Then they pray through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like Perez who Tamar bore to Judah. There's power in this too. Tamar, if you read the story, it is, it's brutal. But interestingly, Tamar was a foreigner who was included into God's people. And the line that she saves through birth was about to go to extinction too. And so this family is being blessed, not only that God wouldn't intervene, not only that she's accepted, they're even praying out of an ancient example of Ruth that it would take place again. This is affirmation upon affirmation upon affirmation. And it's nothing but beautiful. It seems finally there's no more hidden surprises. No more unexpected turns, no more possible pitfalls, and yet the elders and that other relative and the whole crowd and all of us are left with two grand questions halfway through chapter 4. Would Ruth be able to have children? Would Naomi get grandchildren? Would the line be lost or recovered? And second, would Boaz and Ruth, in fact, become the foundation for something of profound significance, of great influence beyond Bethlehem, beyond the tribe of Judah, beyond the Hebrew people? And of course, we know, because we read ahead, the answer is yes. For Ruth and Boaz, because they are faithful, become the foundation for King David. And out of King David becomes Jesus the Messiah. And we're all sitting here at C4 today because Boaz and Ruth were faithful. When we get together in church and we hear sermons, a lot of times we reduce a sermon being good or bad on how we felt, how good the sermon was articulated, or if we learned something new. Yeah, we learned what the gate was, fine. We learned what feet were in the Bible, interesting. But this isn't just a lecture. This is not just about acquiring new information so we culturally get things better, though very significant. This is God showing up through his living word to speak to us. And so the question we always must ask, no matter who we are, how long, or we've been in the faith, or not in the faith at all yet, the question is, what is the living God of heaven and earth saying to us in small ways and grand ways? 
My prayer for myself and you this morning as I end is this, that you'll have ears that are open, hearts that are receptive, so we can truly hear what God wants to say. As I was preparing this week, I suddenly re-realized the power of this story. So many of you have expressed, like I said, through social media and through personal conversations that the gospel is so unbelievably clear, the good news that Boaz is a foreshadow of Jesus, and so many of us have been going deeper with Jesus because of our understanding. But let me take you even farther, because only when you understand what I'm about to say will your love for Jesus grow deeper, or if you have not experienced it, you will begin to appreciate it more. I want to start this way. God like Boaz, was under no obligation to come and be in relationship with us. Let me say that again clearly, especially for us who've grown up in church. God was not under obligation or duty to come and be in relationship with us. We walked away from him, Scripture says first, and God is good within himself. He has community. He is a trinity within himself. He does not need our land. He does not need our lives. He does not need our reputation. He does not need us. Just like what I preached about Boaz. Boaz was second in line. He had a great life. He was rich. He did not need land. He had a phenomenal reputation. He did not need any external help at all. He didn't need Ruth. He didn't need Naomi or their land. God is God. He is self-sufficient in the fullest, most holy sense. Though he is love, he is within himself. But amazingly, oh, thank God, obligation is not what drives God. God is love, and he wants to be with us and, and doesn't want our stuff. He wants us. He, he knows within himself because he made us and we're in his image that we as humans become fully human when we encounter him and live for his glory and we experience his freedom when creator and created walk together again as it was always supposed to be. Think about it today. Hear this. You online too. None of us love it when someone does something out of duty or obligation. We may appreciate it, but it's not love. Parents, I never understood this. I get this now. What is the difference between your kids obeying you because you made them do it and your kids doing it because they had a willing heart? What's the difference? Everything. Ladies, ladies, what is the difference when your guy shows up and he gives you a gift because he has to? It's Valentine's Day. Do this or you die. Okay. It is our anniversary. Forget and there will be... Okay. Duty. Versus him showing up and writing you a letter or, or just looking at you in the eyes and say, tell me about your day, or just shows up and gives you flowers and you say, why? Just because. What's the difference? It's massive. Because one thing's about duty and obligation. The other thing is an unexpected, undeserved expression of love. We as human beings at our core crave to be loved. We want to be wanted beyond duty or obligation. And God chooses that for us. Jesus, like I've preached and Dave has preached, is our kinsman redeemer, just like Boaz stepping in because he loved Ruth, not because he needed her stuff and her mother-in-law. So God loves us and steps in with us. He expresses this by Jesus, through Jesus, and in Jesus. Jesus comes, who is God himself, and stands in our place. He, he takes a wrath that has been spent, not diverted, that we deserved. He deals with death 
He deals with our sin. He chooses to keep walking with us time and time again when we keep sinning. God loves us, not out of duty or obligation. He does it because he loves us. Only when we approach God this way does John 3.16 have even more power. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he or she has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Salvation, when you reject it, is spurning God's love. Hear this this morning very carefully, whether you're a Christian or you're not. When we can get honest in this church about our entitlement, That idea in our minds that many of us who've done church for so long have started to believe, though we never started there, that God has to save us because it's his job, because it's who he is, that he owes us, that God is about saving people, so he better... Once you begin to understand that is a lie from the pit of hell, When you begin to understand that is nothing but pride and entitlement, like a young teenager saying to their parents, you must do this, then do you begin to see the power of God's love. God was not dutiful. He did not have to come for us. He was not obligated to come for us. He wanted to come for us. He chose to come for us. And only when we begin to see God's love beyond entitlement or some job description or some duty will we begin to understand his love is even more significant, that we would begin to walk for him more because we realize the cost, the journey, the expense God has paid to get to know us and love us again. Right? This is so important that we catch this, especially as Western Christians. Entitlement in your theology has to die. God does not share his glory with another. God is God and he does not need us. But oh, thank God, he loves us anyway. When you begin to see that you have been bought, when you begin to see that God is redeemer and you couldn't do anything about it, only then does love become so profound because you realize God wasn't going, oh, I have to save them. Oh my goodness, they screwed up again. No, no. He's coming for us because he loves us, just like Boaz did everything to get Ruth. What's the implication of that love? The implication is this. God has declared over some of us in this room that have embraced him that his sandal is in our circle. Whether you feel it or know it or not, let me say this to you with authority. When God decided to walk into your life, He declared to all of creation, he declared to every single angel, he declared within himself, and he declared to the whole kingdom of darkness, this person, this family, they're mine. When God throws his sandal in the circle in front of all of creation, there is no turning back. When he looked at you and called you and elected you and said, I'm going to become your kinsman redeemer and I am coming for you, there is nothing that can stop him. He comes like a hurricane or a flood and he gets us. This is how Paul articulated this in Ephesians. He said in Ephesians 1.3, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, to be blameless in his sight. In love, notice that, in love he predestined us for adoption through sonship in Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we, here's the word, notice it, we have what? Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with God's riches as grace that he lavished on us. The result, when you begin to understand that there was no entitlement allowed, but there was only a choice of God coming for us, not out of duty, but of love. When you begin to understand that, when you begin to start living a Christian life, realizing that the God of heaven and earth has thrown his sandal in, and he has called you, and adopted you, and he has redeemed you. When you begin to understand that you are owned by God, the result is nothing but life-changing, even for a long-term Christian life. The result of God's interference in our life is love. The result is community. The result is eternal life. The result is answers to the very human longings we all have. The result is a love that is so powerful that it cancels all evil. It banishes all pain, reverses disorder, in part now and fully to come. It is love that is not duty-based or obligation, but willing that makes us, what? Whole again. That is why Paul would write so powerfully in Romans 8 these words. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will we not also along with him graciously be given all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is praying for us right now. Who shall separate us, notice it, from the love of Jesus? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we're considered sheep to the slaughter. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who what? Say it. Loved us. For I am convinced that neither death or life, angels, demons, present, future, or any power, height or depth, or anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When God puts his sandal in for you, you're done. (laughs) And it is the most profound, beautiful thing. God doesn't come for us out of obligation. He comes out of choice. The implication of choice is redemption, forgiveness, hope, reconciliation, forgiveness, power, love. No Christian ever dies alone. Have you ever thought about that? We don't face death alone like those who do. We're never forsaken, even on our deathbeds. What's the implication of being called? What's the implication of being loved beyond duty? Well, it's this. The challenge for us as Christians is to live beyond the moment. One person preached this to their congregation, so I'm just going to steal it. The book of Ruth, he says, wants to teach us that God's purpose for his people is to remind us, to connect us to something far greater than us. God wants us to know that when we follow him, our lives mean more than we think they mean. Listen, Naomi had no idea in the land of Moab that God was making her the ancestor of Jesus. For the Christian, there is always a connection between the ordinary and the stupendous work of God in history. Everything we do, here's the key phrase, in obedience to God, no matter how small it is, is significant. 
It is part of the cosmic mosaic that God is painting to display the greatness of his power and the greatness of his wisdom, even in front of the principalities and powers who think they run the place. A deep satisfaction. Let me say this very, everyone listen. A deep satisfaction in the Christian life, which many of us don't know what, what that is. A deep satisfaction in the Christian life is that we are not given over to trifling, serving a widow, mother-in-law, gleaning in a field, falling in love, having a baby. For Christians, these things are connected to eternity. They are part of something much bigger than they seem. Hear this this morning. So many people, when they get older, become bitter because they look back when they were 15 or 21 and their dreams didn't happen. So many people die in our culture, depressed and ruined, because they don't think they had significance. Let me declare to you as a Christian, we have significance because of what God has done in us. When we are obedient and we follow God in the boring, normal day of life, he is doing something with our obedience grander than we can imagine. And only in eternity will we see the results of our obedience. Amen? Hear this this morning. So many Christians feel like they are inadequate or not doing enough. to Listen, just be faithful. God isn't interested in you being famous. God is calling us to be a faithful people, and what he does with our faithfulness is his deal. And so we are called in the boring, everyday, normal life to obey Jesus and worship Jesus and love the poor and tell people about Jesus and be faithful to the covenants we've made with him and others. We are called to live a faithful Christian life, and when we do that, it not only mocks the principalities and powers of this world, God will use it to do things in our life and other people's lives that we may or may not see, but in eternity, we will see the power and the significance of faithfulness. Famous things disappear. Faithfulness ripples forever. Ever. Last thing and I'm done. And the band can come back. And here it is. Ready? Did you notice something? Everything that this little part of Ruth teaches is the longing of every human heart. Did you catch it? Every human wants to be loved. Every human wants to be wanted. Every human wants to be wanted for them. Every human being never wants to be alone in the truest sense. Every human being wants love. Every human being wants identity. Every human being wants purpose. In Ruth, we are taught that we are loved, that we are chosen, that we are involved, that we have an identity in a work that is not based on us, and we are given purpose to live a faithful life under the laws and love of God. Never forget if you're a Christian here this morning and you think in our culture as it grows darker and more dangerous that our good news may not be strong enough to overcome it. Let me remind you, our good news is good news. It has the power of God to save anyone who will believe because it answers every human craving at its core. Never be ashamed of the gospel. Never be ashamed of the exclusivity of our gospel because the gospel is that God came for us and will give us everything to be human again. Our God is a good God. Our God is a loving God. Our God is an answering giving God. And our God wants to be connected. Go this week with power and tell others and yourself that this is truth in a world that says there is no truth. 
This is the gospel of our Lord in foreshadow in the Old Testament. Let us pray. God, this day, as your community gathers physically here and virtually here and around the world, we are just thankful, thankful that this is true. My prayer for myself, someone now in middle life, I pray for those below me and those walking in front of me, that no matter our age or stage, that we would never allow our hearts, our families, or the evil one to deceive us and believe the lie that we are not longed for by God. I pray in Jesus' name that our security and our identity be rooted in Jesus. Holy Spirit, I really ask you, go across this congregation and begin to convict us in any place or way where we do not root everything that we are in you and we root it in something else. Bring deep sorrow about that so we can be free. And we also pray, too, that you would give us an ability just to be faithful Christians. I pray that the want for faithfulness would grow beyond the want of fame. Help us to be faithful. And we anticipate, Lord, what you're going to show us in eternity. I just, Holy Spirit, make us exceedingly satisfied. Maybe this is my prayer. Exceedingly satisfied with just being faithful. I ask this in Jesus' name. The God who called Boaz, made Ruth, met Ruth, and set up our faith. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to the ministry, visit our website at www.c4church.com. 